From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch, broadcasting this week from Washington, D.C. Anti-Semitism, it's a system, just like white supremacy, that has been built by people for their own reasons and can be dismantled. In recent years, anti-Semitic incidents, whether in-person attacks, vandalism, or online hate, have been increasing. The level of vitriol unleashed by recent changes at Twitter alongside pronouncements by politicians and public figures threatens to desensitize Americans to the kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric and violence that would have been unthinkable just a year ago. This week, we'll have the first in a series of conversations about this deeply troubling trend. I'll talk with Rabbi Jason Kimmelman-Block, Washington Director of Ben the Ark Jewish Action, and Isaac Luria, Program Director at the Nathan Cummings Foundation. There is a lot of concern that creating broad speech or First Amendment exceptions from anti-discrimination law could really blow open the door to a new era of legal segregation in a way that I think would harm in some respects the thing that this case was purported to protect, which is the beliefs of people of faith. It's been a very long year at the Supreme Court. While few rulings have been surprising for a newly right-leaning SCOTUS, several have redefined life for a great number of Americans. We'll review 2022 with Elizabeth Reiner Platt, Director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University, and Interfaith Alliance Director of Policy and Advocacy, Katie Joseph. You can hear State of Belief on the radio and get the podcast on Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Every week, I will be in conversation with some of the most fascinating and impactful civic and religious leaders across the nation. You won't want to miss it please subscribe today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, I really want to thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now, on to my first guest. Rabbi Jason Kimmelman-Block is Washington Director of Ben the Ark Jewish Action. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks so much, Paul. Great to be here. So maybe you can just set us, um, maybe you can just set the stage a little bit. Like, where, what do we know about the current state of the rise of anti-Semitism? Get, let's get as specific as we can so we know what we're really talking about what, what are the numbers that you might have and what are the ways that you're seeing it manifested that we should be paying special attention to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, uh, it's important that you begin with the numbers um, because the whole conversation about numbers is actually a fairly complicated one. Sometime, hopefully in the next few weeks, we're expecting hate crimes data to come out from the FBI and they track data over time. And the fact is the data is really, really hard to get a finger on in terms of just hate crimes data. A, hate crimes data is classically and structurally underreported. Some police departments and some states even report zero hate crimes in their jurisdiction. 
so there there are efforts, the Jabrar Higher Hate Act, which was passed uh, a little over a year ago, is seeking to rectify some of those issues. Uh, but there's also an issue where the hate crimes is tracked by police. And so there are many groups that are victims of hate crimes that may not feel safe going to the police. And so Jewish community is multi-ethnic and multiracial and is predominantly white. And so, you know, white people in this country are taught that police keep you safe. And so we're a little more likely to report hate crimes. Um, but what we're certainly seeing over the past at least five or six years is increasing violence towards Jewish communal institutions, as well as identifiably Jewish individuals, as well as a culture where it seems that um, using anti-Semitism in a variety of ways, sometimes explicitly about Jews, but sometimes implicitly, where if you don't know the code, you don't actually know that like anti-Semitism is being deployed. And we're seeing that with more and more regularity. It seems like that's actually happening almost in a kind of I hate to say it, but commonplace political rhetoric, you know, around yes. like George Soros, you know, the I, maybe this is what you're talking like George Soros, like George Soros funded, which is almost like code for Jewish. Absolutely. Um, and that's not like really super fringy anymore. Yes. But I think what you're saying is really important for all of us to remember around like how we get statistics is statistics have to be gathered from people who are feel confident enough to talk about what happened to them. And I think this goes across the board where people are like, oh, that's not worth me talking. I remember hearing someone say, oh, I got, I just got yelled at because like people called me a, like a terrible Jewish name. And I was like, oh, are you going to report it? And they were like, oh no, you know? And I, and I was like, sure. why not? You know? And they, they were just like, that's just not, I didn't get hurt. And I'm sure. like, okay, you know, so I just think that it's really important that whatever numbers are coming out, even how bad they are, are not reflecting the full story of the experience of Jewish people in this country in 2022. Sure. sure. And it's also, it's, it's important not to talk about anti-Jewish bigotry in isolation from other groups that are targeted by hate, as well as, you know, the fact that many Jews have intersecting identities, right? So if we look at anti-Black racism and, you know, what kind of daily experiences of racism, whether remarks or whether things that are more structural, like those don't get reported in hate crimes data, right? They often show up in health data in terms of higher rates of hypertension and all the... Uh -huh all the physical health impacts that people deal with when you're dealing with bigotry each and every day. And so I think it's really important to also, you mentioned, you know, the George Soros pieces to acknowledge the political context in which this is taking place, that we have experienced in the past six years or so ideas that were once confined to the fringes of the far right that have, are now commonplace. So you mentioned George Soros, that trope of the shadowy wealthy Jew who's pulling the strings behind people. You know, it, it was deployed during the Kavanaugh hearings when people were 
uh-huh. you know, speaking out. People said, oh, well, those were just George Soros funded groups. It was deployed to deadly effect in the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections when far right and not even so far right figures on Fox News, but also in Congress, also from the White House, were trying to mobilize their base by whipping up a hysteria. You may remember about the caravan. Uh, There's a caravan of migrants and it's an invasion. And there was a lot about George Soros funding this as if people who are trying to get a better life and fleeing to this country for safety would need to be manipulated in order to do that. You know, it's just absurd on its face, which culminated in the deadliest anti-Semitic massacre in American history, which which was at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. There is a straight line between that political rhetoric and the violence. Yeah, I, I there's an incident in my own family that, that this is which you may or may not have heard about, which is the uh, Goldmark affair. He was a he was a rancher in eastern Washington in the 60s, and he got targeted for being a communist. Mm-hmm. And he was also like had the Goldmark name. He was technically not Jewish, but he was it was Jewish communism. So he got attacked politically and mm. really, 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 and he won the libel suit, but it remained in the air. And then 20 years later, his, one of his sons was killed with his family in oh, Seattle nice. because the guy said, this is a communist Jewish plot. Right. So like these words, these tropes have real meaning for people and real violence and death can happen. So I just think like right. the stakes that we're dealing with are high. Yeah. And they linger and it's like a, it's fester and we just need to make clear. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what Ben the Ark and you and, and your, all the people you work with, which includes a wonderful set of people across groups. But what, how you feel like we can, we can all be mobilized in this way and what kind of resources do you have at Ben the Ark that might be helpful for people? Absolutely. Absolutely. And just one thing I wanted to say to follow up on the point that you just made, what a horrific story, uh, Paul, is is that those kind of attacks, especially with political valence that have their roots in anti-Semitism, don't just affect Jews and don't just harm Jews. They, They harm the whole society and the whole political culture. The Red Scare, certainly a terrible chapter in American history, you know, was animated by anti-Semitism. The QAnon, and this is a, this was completely connected with the Red Scare. The, the story exactly. I just told about my family exactly. that was a Red Scare story that kept on echoing. So that we're right. still feeling the effects of the Red right. sto- and Scare. And you're talking about QAnon, which is QAnon, a manifestation yes, similar thing, and which inspired you know violence, the violence of January sixth. So these things don't just get isolated to right. a particular community that's under attack. It infects the whole culture. And that, and that's how Ben the Ark is working to address uh, anti-Semitism, is that we understand that it would be a mistake to just examine anti-Semitism on its own in isolation without understanding the broader political context and also the broader context of uh, who all is being targeted. What we, what we understand is that we're being targeted by a white nationalist movement that has its roots in sort of classic white supremacy, but is, you know, built for this particular moment. And that we are one of many targets 
of the white nationalist movement. What we just saw in Colorado Springs, what we saw in Buffalo last year, you know, what, what we unfortunately see over and over again, it's all part of the same violent political movement. Often people react to these, these horrific acts of violence and chalk it up to mental health, which you know is frankly offensive to people who are experiencing real mental health issues. This is about a political movement that has its roots in violence. So one of the things that we do is our work around hate crimes and uh, around advocacy is always done in solidarity with other groups that are under attack. When the Biden administration had just been elected and during the transition, we made a series of recommendations to the incoming administration together with Muslim advocates and the Arab American Institute to make clear that we want solutions that will make a real impact and reduce the harm in all of the communities that are under attack. Right. I mean, if, if we look at the last, as you said, six years or so, you know, the rise in um, vandalism and attacks on synagogues is paralleled with the rise in uh, vandalism and attacks in mosques. It's not merely a coincidence that that's happening at the same time. And uh, and it's Correct. really so I think that this, you know, th- this is so, so helpful. And I, I think one of the things that is very difficult, this is where it gets really hard. And I, you know, I only say this to you because I know that like you're able to help us think through this is like, what is the connection or not connection between criticisms of Israel and anti-Semitism? You know, I say that as someone who comes from a, a family that is strong supporter of Israel, but also recognizes, I also feel that, that, that being able to criticize Israel is extremely important. So I'm just... I think that I'm I'm tiptoeing into this, sure, because it's the it's the landmine that we have a really hard time talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just say, you know, beforehand is that Ben the Ark as an organization works, you know, only on domestic issues. So we're you well, know, that's the same with Interfaith Alliance. And, we're both very yeah, quick to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I'll just say, as uh, you know, as, as a rabbi and as a, as a Jew, it is absolutely the case that criticism of any country and harsh criticism of any country's actions is not ipso facto bigotry, right? I I think we can all agree about that. I do think that there are times when when criticism can be deployed in ways that that implement anti-Semitism, that kind of pick up on those things, and those instances should be be condemned and, and, and often are. I think that um, there are often forces on the right inside the Jewish community that don't want to see any criticism. And some of that is an explicit political platform of like, you know, I have a right wing ideology and this is a way of uh, deflecting. And there are also some for whom harsh criticism is very emotional for many, many Jews. Israel feel, you know, people have a, you know, maybe it has a real emotional connection. And so to feel like, you know, there's harsh criticism taking place, it's often hard to distinguish between I'm feeling like really uncomfortable and emotionally unsafe 
and like bigotry is actually being deployed in this way. But, but it's absolutely the case that to blame Jews for the actions of a government or to assume, you know, ev- uh, assume the political beliefs of a person just because they are Jewish or where, you know, or identifiably Jewish. Um, that's, that's not okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's a really helpful um, delineation. And I understand that Ben the Ark, like Interfaith Alliance, is a domestic organization and it really works on domestic issues. So I appreciate you you, you going into that. I, I do think it comes up a lot when we talk about anti-Semitism. And so it's Absolutely. It, you're, the, the way you um, went into that and also talked about the emotion of it, because like that's like also really at play here and it's just really helpful. So going forward, like let's let's say that we all deploy. What would be a way that we can feel that we have been able to, you know, honestly, anti-Semitism has been happening for so many millennial that that it's almost impossible to imagine it going away. But what would you hope for over the next four years that would feel like the Jewish community can say, okay, we, we met that challenge, not just the Jewish community, the American community met that challenge. Like how would, how would you like to see us um, be able to reflect on the last four years if we're thinking about maybe 2025 or 2026? Um, The first thing I would say is I think it's important for us not to get into a framework where we feel like anti-Semitism or any specific form of bigotry is inevitable and will always be here and always come back. Anti-Semitism is a, it's a system just like white supremacy that has been built by people for their own reasons and can be dismantled. And so it's not part of the natural world. There is no, you know, you know, this is a system that was developed for specific reasons and at different times that is to the benefit of actors who are trying to use it, including in this political moment. So I think like, I want to say that from the beginning. And so what needs to be done is we need to work together to dismantle it. And the way we're going to dismantle it is not by isolating anti-Semitism, but by dismantling the bigotries that are at the core of our society, American society, and going back, you know, we're part of Western society in general. I think in American society, we need to spend way more energy than we're spending right now thinking about anti-Black racism and how we deconstruct it. As long as anti-Black racism is such a core part of our culture and our systems, no group is safe. So I think that the more that all the targets of hate, whether it's Black, Latino, people with disabilities, LGBTQ community, the Jewish community, and you know, it's important to say those aren't separate communities, they're all overlapping, right. Right. Um, really need to continue to build a movement that has like an irresistible vision of a society where we can all fully thrive and be ourselves, right? And like, I think this is where 
to me, the religious work comes in because what we're talking about is building, you know, in my language as a rabbi, building a, a society that recognizes uh, that we're all B'Tselem Elohim, that we're all created in the image of God and that we have infinite worth and value and dignity to be fully ourselves. Like that, that's the charge. And I know that that's kind of big and may feel amorphous, but the way we do that, you know, in the next four years is to get out of the mode of talking about each of these things in isolation, to get out of the mode of saying, well, you know, it's coming from everywhere. I, I think there's a both sides thing happening that says like, oh, we see, we see these things like on the right and on the left. Well, yes, that's true. Just like we see anti-Black racism, you know, in progressive spaces as well as, and sexism, you know, in progressive spaces as well as in right-wing spaces. But we have to recognize, wait, who's benefiting from those hates? Who gets stronger when those bigotries get mainstreamed and and who gets weaker and uh who gets stronger are the people and the politicians who get their power from fear and division yeah and so the I, way to yeah, overcome I, fear and division is yeah. to it's to be more in solidarity with each other yeah i like that i like that i really like the hopeful vision you know i i say frequently on this this program I, the referencing the baldwin achieving our country that like either we can decide it's not possible or it's possible. And the only way that we're going to make it possible is when people come together to dedicate themselves to achieving our country. So I think it's really Amen. like a, a great vision. I wonder if you're, you know, we're getting close to Hanukkah. And I wonder if you have, would, would close us out with some sort of, you know, reflection on Hanukkah for this year. And, and uh, if there's any sort of... Um, offering for our listeners who, who may be Jewish or, or maybe, you know, everyone needs a blessing. So uh, Absolutely. Do you have a, I do have a Hanukkah uh, thought or anything. Absolutely. Um, one of my favorite Midrashim uh, rabbinic stories about Hanukkah is um, they tell a story, they tell the story that when Adam, the first human being first experienced winter, he noticed that the days were getting shorter and that the nights were getting longer and it kept increasing and more and more darkness and less and less light. And he thought that the world was ending, right? He thought like, this is it where I'm going to be swallowed up by the darkness and creation is unraveling and we're going to go back to chaos he prayed. I'm trying to remember whether uh, he lit candles at that at that moment. And the solstice came, of course, and then the days started getting longer and things started kind of moving in reverse. And he realized that, oh, this is this is just how the world works. We have cycles of increasing darkness and then increasing light. And the rabbis identify that as sort of the primordial roots of Hanukkah. So that huh. that's what I think about is like, there's so many reasons to despair. There's so many times where we feel like, gosh, things are just going in a horrible direction, either for our society or maybe in my personal life. And just that act of like lighting candles, increasing candles. And we see that in Christmas too, right? Like I love when all the, although people like put up their lights everywhere. To me, it's just a great, 
act of faith, faith in a, in a way of like assurance that, you know, there's going to be light again and like, uh-huh. here's where we are. And, you know, we're going to move back to something better. Rev, I thank you so much for joining me on State of Belief and for all your wisdom that you've shared today. I look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks so much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. I'll talk more about this urgent topic with Isaac Luria of the Nathan Cummings Foundation and later, SCOTUS's disruptive 2022 year with Katie Joseph and Elizabeth Reiner Platt, director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia University. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. Isaac Luria is program director at Nathan Cummings Foundation, supporting multi-faith and Jewish social justice efforts. And he's here to continue the conversation on the surge in anti-Semitism. Isaac, thanks for being with us on State of Belief. Brilliant to be here. Thank you, Paul. I think um, every one of my cousins, uh, relatives, friends, neighbors uh, who is Jewish is experiencing this differently. And I'm just wondering if you can start by talking personally about how you're feeling. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. And I appreciate that opening. I was thinking about this conversation and, you know, every time I talk about anti-Semitism with folks, I I always want to have a historical perspective and acknowledge the incredible pain that has happened uh, to Jews over the course of millennia due to anti-Semitism. The murders, um, the uh, pogroms, uh, the forced leaving from places we had lived for generations, the betrayal of communities that we had lived in, uh, and the ways in which that uh, oppression over generations has affected us and who we are and who we are allowed to be today. Uh, That trauma lives in our bones. Uh, It is present every day, um, like many other communities who have had trauma uh, throughout generations. And today I feel it because I am experiencing the not just a surge in anti-Semitic incidents, but the normalization of ideas of anti-Semitism uh, that are extremely dangerous, not only to Jews, but to the possibility of a multiracial democratic uh, society here in the United States. So yeah. thank you for that opening. And I appreciate being here, being able to talk with you and, and your listeners about it. Well, I think what you said is, you know, the normalization, almost the permission granted uh, in, in to give, you know, uh, have this be a conversation that seems to... Um, lack a certain sensitivity, lack a certain awareness of just what you're talking about, just why this is landing in a certain way. And so I just really, I think it's so important for people to hear what you just said, is that this is this is centuries of yeah. uh, experiencing this. Um, people in living memory, and many of them still living, experiencing the Holocaust, which is not up for debate, but in in some circles, there is right. uh, there are people who would rather erase it, 
And uh, and so this is, you know, this is something that I think people have to realize is the way this is landing for their Jewish neighbors. And um, I'm just wondering if, you know, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but like, for you, I mean, you're you're married to a rabbi. You have mm-hmm. children. You're you know you're also just a, my experience of you as a as a person, as a colleague, as a friend is that you're a family man, and <laughs> and that you know I mean in the best sense of the word, you know, yeah. and and I think that there's one thing for you know for for people to walk around as, as themselves, but then as family people, you you carry around a whole nother set of concerns. And so, you know, I don't want you to put you talk about anything that you don't want to talk about, but I do think that's really also important. This is not just about mm-hmm. individuals. It's about families and family communities. Yes. And it's about, uh, so clearly because I am who I am and my kids listen to the radio with me <laughs> in the car, like we, we end up having conversations about anti-Semitism and what it will be like for them as Jewish people here in America um, you know, they're social justice kids, you know, they they know that uh, they want to fight racism. They support Black Lives Matter. They support LGBTQ rights. Um, and uh, for uh, to see anti-Semitism as a part of that feels like natural to them. Right. Mm-hmm. They're they're like the folks who don't like me because I'm gay also don't like Jews. Uh, the folks who don't uh, uh, support Black Lives Matter are also uh, the folks, you know, out here with white nationalist banners saying that Jews shall not replace us. So they, they, there's a way in which they, they have a natural understanding of these things intersecting, um, which I wish I could claim <laughs> uh, some kind of credit for that as a dad doing political education in the house. But honestly, it's the, it's the, it's what's been happening in the world uh, that is showing us this anew. Um, and yeah, you know, let me let me just yeah. stop you for a second and give you some credit because you're helping <laughs> them make connections that I think are important for uh, our our listeners to also make. That this is, um, you know, that there's a there is a through line here. That yeah. this is not like you know, and and it is a very specific scourge. Anti-Semitism is its own thing, and so it doesn't just get blended with everything else. However, it is it has a through line. I you know, and you know, let me, you know, as I would say, uh, white Christian nationalism is its yes. current like phrasing. Um, but it it is a through line that that affects many communities, and it's and it has specific implications for the Jewish community. So your kids making that connection is partly due to, you know, the great work you do in the world as someone who has been um, just, a, you know, a really important movement leader. Uh, and so, you know, I just I, I don't want you to get away with saying this has nothing to do with you because well, we're, both we're, you and your and your wife are extraordinary you. leaders. You're, you're very kind to say it. And I think we're in this together, Paul. And I think this is, you know, you as a Christian leader and and your work. Uh, you know, lifting this up today and and all days is really important because uh, as Jews, we know that we're not going to be able to solve anti-Semitism on our own. Um, And, you know, I think the thing that I want to bring to your listeners today is to continue to deepen that understanding of anti-Semitism fitting into a, a set of oppressions that affect all marginalized people. And in fact, are not just about, quote unquote, hatred of Jewish people. It's not like 
I'm going to be out there with my, you know, keepa on my head and somebody's going to say something nasty to me on the subway. Like, while that's terrible, what I'm really thinking about is the way that this affects what's possible in our politics in America, what's mm. possible in our democracy. We will be a majority minority country uh, in a voting public very soon. It's already happened in our high schools, right? Uh, that reality is what threatens white nationalists and white Christian nationalists. They are scared of America changing and changes forever. It's constant. It's an always thing. Sorry for the spiritual message, but it's a true thing. And so we have a kind of adaptation that's happening in America right now. And the use of anti-Semitism as a political tool to prevent the emergence of multiracial democracy in America is the is the important message that I feel like is sort of under everything. Mm. Um, Anti-Semitism was used in Nazi Germany, for example, not just because Nazis didn't like Jews, but because it was a way of mobilizing hatred at a national scale. It's mm. a very effective way of doing it. The yeah. same thing can happen in other contexts. Uh, the Soviet Union used it uh, as well as a way of mobilizing its supporters. So uh, we have to be aware of the ways that anti-Semitism is not just how I am affected by hatred in my community, but also about what it is, the story that it's trying to articulate about a conspiratorial attack on mm -hmm. white people. Um, and that Jews are a part of that, black and brown people together with Jews doing that. And this is a classic thing that happened in the civil rights era. Similar accusations levied at the civil rights movement. Jews controlling black people or trying to free back black people from Jim Crow. And of course, that's like a ridiculous set of ideas because black people obviously are like advocating for their own lives or in charge of their own destinies. Right. But Jews did ally there. And I think we should be proud of that. I think we should be proud of what the Jewish people are doing here in America also in, in holding up a light uh, to giving giving a, a vision for a multiracial America. We, we actually are a multiracial community too. There are brown people in our community from Arab countries, Mizrahi Jews, there are black Jews uh, as well as white Jews. And and that diversity is, is a strength. So- um, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's like a everything you said, just like underscore everything you said is just really, really important. And and the historical ways that anti-Semitism has been used by, I would say, you know, authoritarian governments trying yes. to rally a base of resentment and uh, and 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 often to um obfuscate is that the word obfuscate am i just making <laughs> up a word uh to to like you know pay no attention to the man behind the curtain exactly uh, instead they're over there look at them right there um as right. i think really really important my guest is isaac luria program director at the nathan cummings foundation one difficult conversation that i that i want to see if you want to engage mm -hmm. is um there has been what what seems to me an over I'm just going to say this, and I'm not sure if I really what I really think about it, but let's go. A lot of yeah, attention, a lot of attention paid to yeah. Kanye West, right. uh, Irving, and other and black leaders who have who have you know they've definitely been doing terrible anti-Semitic things, but in some ways that has reinforced a kind of conflict. And again, I think it goes back to this wider mm -hmm. framework that you just articulated. Oh, let's make this about black and Jews instead of actually 
a broader story about a nation. And so I just am curious how you, a racial analysis, and in future shows, um, Rabbi Sandra Lawson and other black Jews are going to come on and talk to us about that. So I think, you know, this is just the beginning of that conversation. But but I do want to, I want to name it because there's been a, with me, an unease in some of the ways this has been framed. Yes, I think that's a really important point and one that uh, when you really step back, you can see that it has been easier in the media and in the public to attack black people over their anti-Semitic statements than it has been to hold white leaders to account. Um, With political power, with the ability to change policies in this country, uh, Kanye West, let's yay or whatever, like we can say a lot about him, but he is, um, he's a jokester. Like he's not in political power. He has some narrative power in some communities, um, but it's not serious. Donald Trump hosted a white nationalist who has openly uh, anti-Semitic beliefs and denies the existence of the Holocaust at his home. The man's running for president has a potential to win. He was a former president of the United States. These are different things. And I think the reason that this is possible is because these are black folks and not white people in power. Um, And I'm going to call out part of my community because I think it's important to acknowledge that it has been easier for many white Jewish institutions to levy accusations against the black community around anti-Semitism than to hold Republican politicians to account. And I think part of that is about power, right? Like who has power, what can you say in public and what can you cannot say in public? And part of that I think has to do with a misunderstanding of how important uh, having a racial analysis in the way we confront anti-Semitism really is. And um, I hope that white Jewish institutions, sort of the alphabet soup that shows up in DC, uh, ADL, AGC, others, will continue to you know get smarter about this uh, because there is a kind of alienation of our allies, um, you know, black, brown, other folks, and including Jews of color in our community that happens when we do that. And, and we can be better on this. We can do yeah, better. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think long-term strategy and just the well-being of our country requires it. Um, and, uh, and, and for, for, I, I, and also to acknowledge that there has been a, uh, an extraordinary response from the black community condemning all of these things and, uh, yeah, uh, the, these actions. Exactly. And so, but, but, uh, you know, you're almost sort of like, okay, so let's give them, uh, all the folks who have, have been stepping up from all sides, uh, condemning all of this. Yeah. Let, let me, let me, um, as you know, as we kind of close out, um, I know that you're like super smart about uh, um, kind of social media, Twitter. I don't know if you're like as active on Twitter, but you were like, you know, you were (laughs) this has been this is part of your life. There was part of your life. I'm just curious, like, let's take this online for a second and see, like, what what do we um, what how are you seeing kind of the Elon Musk conversation and yeah but but more broadly it's not just about Twitter it's like you know how things show up online and how that can lead to actual actual you know violence offline I mean this is right. not unrelated right yeah I mean I, it, I don't want to go back and cite all the studies 
but that show us how uh, social media, in particular Twitter, uh, have accelerated trends of radicalization. Um, but they do that. Uh, and those trends of radicalization are happening uh, all over, but it, particularly in white nationalist communities where an echo chamber is very important, especially because a lot of these views are considered noxious by the larger society. Elon Musk's sort of wandering into a conversation about how media might uh, make authoritarian politics more palatable and making some really ridiculous you know, moves to like just open up the floodgates in the name of free speech. It it's um it it's not substantial and it's quite dangerous. Uh, yeah. and yeah. and I think you know there's a there is a minor there's sort of a tech bro thing about libertarian let's all let everybody yell at each other sort of thing, um and that that'll be better for democracy. But given the way that power is established in these things and the possibility of violence afterwards, um. Yeah, you actually have to step into this with more care. And yeah. anybody who's run one of these big I mean, I was a moderator for a long time of a Facebook forum. And like you actually have to curate that. You have to moderate that. You have to be like, hey, hey, like crazy cat person in uh the middle of Oklahoma, like you saying over and over again that somebody is like a, a traitor to America is like that's that's not speech. That's somebody yelling in the middle of a public space and we yeah. we have limits about that right we we acknowledge limits about that already in our politics and how we understand uh open space so um no it's been it's been bad uh yeah. to watch this yeah. and an unleashing that really maybe in a way there's a silver lining paul that that seeing it all out in the open will wake people up to the fact that the kind of hatred that's present here is like not just like crazy people, right? Like it, it represents like maybe 25% of the American public. Um, but that's, that's a scary reality. To that's millions and millions of up. people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, what do you I think? always cite that? Well, no, I, I just, you know, having spent a lot of my life working on religion and tech and, and really seeing, yeah. you know, I mean, if you think about the, the person who murdered every those the the people at um, Tree of Life Synagogue. I mean, he was online right before he did it and told people he was going to do it online. Yes, and in, yes. in a in a forum that supported this kind of um, this kind of violence. And so this is and you the know, Pulse nightclub shooting, same thing. All, all of it, uh, and you know, once, it's really, and then the guy and, tries to broadcast it online. He's like showing it out off, showing I mean, off on Facebook about it. I mean, come on. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, let, you know, I, I the last question. I mean, I, how can people show up right now? I would mm. say both. You know, both Jews and non-Jews, in order to really, you know, effectively confront anti-Semitism. Mm. I think there's many ways to do it. I think there are. If you're the kind of person that has relationship with Jews that m is meaningful to you, and you can feel comfortable reaching out and saying, "How are you doing?" That's always great. Um, different Jews have different ways that they like to be supported, just like all people, right? So uh, sort of being a listening ear, showing up for them personally is helpful. I think all of us have different, or many of us have different relationships with institutions in our lives, whether it's church or a political organization or um, you know a place that we give money. And uh, 
these are places where anti-Semitism can show up. So we have a way that we can learn, right? We can have speakers from our community. We can deepen community connections. Uh, taking the opportunity to, to, to encourage that kind of conversation in your community is a good idea. And, and the last thing, I mean, I'm not sure, I mean, the majority of religious people in this country are Christians. So let's just speak to Christians um, for a moment, which is to say, like, there is a particular strand of white Christian nationalism present right now in our politics that is growing in strength, and it must be confronted by the Christian community and the white Christian community specifically. Um, I can't say much to that growing group of people, right? Like I'm, I'm their enemy, but my allies can, um, and they can do so because it's not the gospel they believe in. They can do so for real rooted interests in their own community and because it will make a meaningful difference in the lives of my community and my family. Isaac Luria is a program director at Nathan Cummings Foundation, supporting multi-faith and Jewish social justice efforts, and a former colleague of mine at Auburn Seminary. Isaac, thank you for being part of this important and urgent conversation. Thank you. Love you, Paul. Thanks for thanks Love for you this. too, Isaac. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments on 303 Creative v. Elenis that was about whether a website designer has the right to refuse same-sex couples in designing their wedding websites. There were also other critical cases impacting the practice of religious freedom. So I wanted to take some time with recent cases as well as looking back throughout 2022 with the Supremes. And here to help us with that is Elizabeth Reiner-Platt, director of the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School, and my colleague, Interfaith Alliance Director of Policy and Advocacy, Katie Joseph. Liz, Katie, welcome to State of Belief Radio. Thanks, Thanks so much, Paul. Just on Monday, we've heard some of the arguments that happened in 303 Creative. And I, I wonder, Liz, if you would mind kind of telling us what you heard that uh, in the arguments and, and how, how you see religious freedom and religious expression being framed in this particular case. Well, I think, as we expected, there's a lot of questions around how how broad are we talking about when we're talking about this exemption based on free expression. Uh, there are uh, hypos involving interracial couples, religious minorities, people with disabilities. And I think that speaks to a real concern about maintaining our long history of civil rights law and the recognition that it's civil rights law that has allowed for a pluralistic society for people, including people of faith, and a real concern that creating broad speech or First Amendment exceptions from anti-discrimination law could really blow open the door to a new era of, of legal segregation in a way that I think would harm in some respects the thing that this case was purported to protect, which is the beliefs of people of faith. Yeah, I, I thank you for saying that, because that is, I think, many of our questions is. So I'm going to like briefly outline what I think the case is about. And, and Katie and Liz are going to correct me about exactly where I'm wrong and where I might be right. Is this is a case of a, um, a website designer uh, 
who um, basically this is not a case. You know, I think Mark Joseph um, uh, did a did a piece about this is not actually about a particular moment. This is about saying I'm not going to do it like preemptive strike. I'm not going to design same sex wedding websites. Uh, as my right through freedom of expression. So this is not primarily a religious freedom case, but it has religious freedom implications. Katie, am I getting that more or less right? That's right, Paul. So this case is unlike a lot of other disputes that we've seen the Supreme Court take up in at the intersection of religious freedom and equal treatment under the law. So this website designer, her name is Lori Smith. She has a successful web design business based in Colorado. She doesn't currently create wedding websites, but she's thinking about expanding her business. Um, And so the state of Colorado has a public accommodations law that prohibits businesses that are open to the public from discriminating against certain groups of people based on status. What I mean by status is membership in a particular group, sexual orientation, religious identity, gender, disability, etc. So Lori Smith, with the backing of Alliance Defending Freedom, is looking to expand her business to begin designing wedding websites, um, but she would like to be able to pick and choose which members of the public she's willing to design those websites for. To be clear, no same-sex couple has approached Lori Smith and asked her for a custom wedding website. She is a devout conservative Christian who believes that marriage should be between one man and one woman and has expressed that she is seeking a preliminary, uh, what might be called an advisory opinion um, from the Supreme Court, giving her permission to turn potential same-sex couples away. What's interesting here is that um, she's making this claim not as a matter of her religious freedom rights, which she raised at the lower court level. The Supreme Court is hearing this as a free speech right. Um, She is claiming that these custom wedding websites are an expression of her speech and therefore um, to abide by the expectations of any other business in the state to not discriminate against customers would actually be a violation of her free speech rights. Yeah, I think that's so, you know, it's, it's super interesting and it's exactly, Liz, what you most people immediately go to. Okay, so why particularly same-sex couples then? If you like didn't want, I mean, I don't know, like, couldn't you just say, oh, I don't, you know, if we were 50 years ago and someone said, my religious beliefs tell me that I, people can't get married between races, no one would bat an eye. You know, I mean, that, that was a very, com- maybe a little bit longer ago, no one that, so that would have been a very like legitimate, you know, point of view in the public. So where's the line? I'm not a lawyer. You two are lawyers. So you keep me in check. I think many citizens are kind of like, well, yeah, people shouldn't have to be able to do that. But then but then the moment they don't get it, you know, for something that, you know, for their life, they, they might be like, wait a second. Public accommodation, I think, is really an important factor here. So, Liz, t- tease that out a little bit for us and, and how that went down uh, at the court. Yeah, I don't think the attorney for 303 Creative was really able to articulate any sort of clear dividing line. I think there was a very telling moment in which they were asking exactly that about the difference between uh, a denial based on sexual orientation and a denial based on race. And the attorney's response was, 
well, look, we uphold uh, protect, free speech protections for speech that we consider to be vile. Um, that was sort of the best she could do. And, and that's essentially a concession that I think, uh, yeah, there is no dividing line when it comes to free speech rights um, between uh, a, a denial um, based on an opposition to same-sex marriage and a denial based on those kind of racist beliefs that you were, were saying later. I just want to swing back very quickly and, and follow up on, on something Katie said about the fact that this is essentially a pre-enforcement. And I, I, I think um, that was done very intentionally. And it was done by Alliance Defending Freedom because I think it's much um, easier to see the ramifications of this kind of ruling when you have a real face on the other side. You have a couple who has been the victim of discrimination during what should be, you know, one of the more joy joyful periods of their life. And they, you know, I think Alliance Defending Freedom looked back and saw that um, courts have been much more uh, uh, willing to shut down these cases when they do have that actual real life couple on the other side. And so I, I think it's worth noting that, that was, this was a real strategic decision on their part. But, it, but you know, if it... The, if the law is meant to be anything, it's meant to affect. It's it's about people. I mean, it's all. It's never should be viewed in the abstract. It's always about the implications for people's lives, and that's like, you know, I think I think what I what I see here is like just this terrible um, road that we could go down, where people can begin to pick and choose who we want to be associated with. Uh, I remember, you know, when when something was going down in Arizona, it was just, it wasn't exactly this case, but it was a freedom of religion case around this. And you know, I wrote a piece called "Like Sincerely Held Beliefs in the Fraying of America," and the idea that you know our beliefs could allow us just to shred our country and just say, oh, you know, this is this is who I decide that I'm going to serve. This is who I get based on, like, you know, my sincerely held beliefs. I don't know. Like, I'm I'm spiraling out here, I admit. But I it does seem to me like a very slippery slope. And especially given the racism that is endemic to our country, the, the misogyny, all these things that, you know, and then, ah, okay, now, I'm going there. But the uh, Alito... Uh, sorry, Justice Alito, um, in in something about a, a, a black Santa and KKK, I don't know. You have to explain it to me. But like, I think he was trying to make a point there. But it was what was he trying to do there? And what, how did you respond to that? So first and foremost, when we think about the rights protected under the religion clauses of the First Amendment, there's freedom of belief and then there's free exercise. Freedom of belief is absolute. In the United States, you have the right to believe anything you want, to follow religious tradition, to not follow religious tradition, or to change your beliefs um, in all kinds of ways. Like I said, freedom of belief is absolute. Freedom of expression, how we live out those beliefs, is limited in some key ways. And we've seen this evolve through the Supreme Court jurisprudence around religious freedom in a number of ways in the past hundred years. I think of one case in particular regarding Bob Jones University. This is a private religious university um, that as part of their teachings, um, their religious doctrine um, included a number of what we would call um, racist 
messages um, and principles. And they were threatening, threatened with losing their tax exempt status um, because they were conducting their private university business in such a way that ran counter to the government's um, stated purpose of advancing equity in education. Um, so Bob Jones University sued um, and a judge found that, yes, you have the right to believe these things, but when you are operating your university that's receiving public funds in a way that runs counter to the government's compelling interest to address racial inequality in education, there are consequences for that. Believe as you will, but there may be consequences for how you express those beliefs in public. So I think the analogy here in the 303 creative case in elsewhere is that all of us have the right to believe what we choose, whether those of us who are on the podcast today would agree with them. But the difference in how we express those beliefs in public, particularly when they would impede on the rights of others to participate in public life on equal footing, may be a little bit different. Yeah. That's the the belief versus expression distinction. I think that the question that you asked about some of the hypotheticals that came from Justice Alito and others, um, there seemed to be a real intention there to muddy the waters around status-based discrimination as protected under non-discrimination laws, so sexual orientation, gender disability, religion, et cetera, versus political affiliation um, or perspective, frankly. Membership in the KKK, for instance, as deplorable as we might believe it to be, that's not a protected class. So a business owner could refuse to serve somebody who comes in in a KKK outfit. What they couldn't do is refuse to serve somebody because of their race. And that's a really important clarification that Justice Alito and others seemed intent on um, muddying to suggest that um, all of this is really just um, an effort to target the views of some people, uh, Lori Smith, the, the website, designer um, in opposition to the views of others, ignoring the long history of civil rights work to ensure that people are not excluded from public life because of who they are. Mm, that is so helpful, uh, parsing that apart. I mean, it's interesting that Alito, I think in Kennedy case, it was like, you're trying to make this too complicated. And here he's like, in this case, he's try he's, he's intentionally trying to make it too complicated himself. So you figure it out. Do you want clarity? Uh, what do you want to do, uh, Justice Alito? Um, Liz, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about um, another case that is, you know, s we're really feeling the implications. I want to I want to have this as a intro to kind of looking back at the last uh, year of uh, cases at the Supreme Court and and how they're going to affect our our kind of our political our, our by political. I mean, our 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 life together in this country going forward. And of course, you know, the the case of um, of, of Dobbs 
uh, has really transformed our nation. I, I'm just wondering, maybe maybe you, we can use this moment for you to talk a little bit about the 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 center you run at Columbia University and some of the the work that you've been doing, and then apply that a little bit to helping us understand the implications of of Dodds and and um, and uh, reproductive rights going forward. Yeah, absolutely. So I direct the Law, Rights, and Religion Project at Columbia Law School. We are a law and policy center that advocates for religious liberty and pluralism, and we're based at the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law. So we do quite a bit of work on the intersection of religious liberty and LGBTQ and reproductive rights. So uh, we do original research and reports. We do amicus briefs. So to backtrack just a second, we did a really wonderful amicus brief in 303 Creative that Interfaith Alliance uh, actually signed. And it was on behalf of 30 uh, Christian, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, interfaith uh, groups um, on the implications of the decision for religious minorities in particular. And, and we've been doing a lot of thinking of late about this intersection between religious liberty and abortion rights, and to what extent uh, folks, uh, the, the ban on abortion um, violates rights under uh, religious liberty and or the establishment clause. So we did a, a analysis of the long history of uh, religious liberty challenges to um, abortion restrictions going back to the days prior to Roe v. Wade even, and we released that report uh, in, in August, and are continuing to watch closely as cases are filed and, and trickle in across the country um, from people who uh, feel like their um, religious obligations are being stifled by uh, these incredibly restrictive bans on abortion. And, it, you know, th- this is something that certainly, you know, my my Jewish friends and, and cousins are like feel really, you know, really some outrage around. It's like, wh- how did it happen that a thin slice of American, frankly, religious perspective came to uh, dominate the rights of others on, on the issue of reproductive rights? I, from what you've been researching, what is the strongest case that they're making around this and um, just how do you how do you understand that and and, and its salience in, in American law? Sure. Well, there are kind of two basic ways to make a, a claim um, at this intersection. There's sort of an establishment clause argument saying that a, a, an abortion ban is essentially um, at its heart a religiously motivated law uh, that violates church state separation and therefore needs to be overturned entirely. Um, There's some not great case law in the past, particularly under the federal establishment clause in this vein. The other way to go about it is to say that um, it's not necessarily a violation of everyone's religious belief, but that I as an individual or my um, faith group or or organization are religiously motivated either to seek abortion care for, for myself to provide it to others. And there's a, a certainly a long history of abortion providers speaking of their work as uh, a ministry or um, a mitzvah or in other religious terms, or for those uh, who say they're religiously motivated to help others access care. So I always love to talk about the history of the clergy consultation service on abortion, which was a pre-row um, network 
of clergy members, particularly um, Protestant ministers and Jewish rabbis, who made it their mission to help people access um, safe abortion care in the days uh, before Roe v. Wade, vetting either illegal providers within the United States or sent helping send folks abroad to, to countries where it was legal. Um, so I think we're going to see all of those claims come up. Um, we've already seen some kind of uh, on offense, if you will, people saying that they affirmatively have a right to access um, uh, this, you know, access this care, or access abortion. Um, but I also think, unfortunately, as we contemplate seeing uh, criminal prosecutions, um, that, that we may see these brought up on def defense as well. Uh, I think there's a really powerful claim being made right now in Kentucky by three Jewish women who are arguing that they are, are religiously called upon to have children and therefore have a right to IVF um, and, uh, you know, don't want the, the risk of, you know, IVF often uh, there might be complications or there might be a, a reason to um, that not, not all the embryos make it. And so um, they are fear felony prosecution um, if they undergo IVF in Kentucky. And so they're bringing a religious liberty claim. And, you know, there was just um, a district uh, trial court um, judge in Indiana that actually ruled that that state's abortion ban violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in the state. That was um, a very contentious uh, religious exemption bill that was actually um, passed under then Governor Mike Pence. Right, right. Um, Katie, what are some other cases from the last year or the last calendar year um, that that feel like important to highlight around religious freedom and democracy cases that came before the Supreme Court that that we should really flag for people's memories? Because I think sometimes it happened a long time ago, but things that get decided whenever have implications going forward. What are some other cases that come to mind this year? One case that I continue to be shocked by, particularly in looking at the majority opinion that was written by Justice Gorsuch, is the Kennedy v. Bremerton case. Um, and this was a case out of Washington concerning a football coach at a public school who developed a practice of a uh, word of prayer kneeling at the 50-yard line at the conclusion of a football game. Um, and to tell Coach, Ken to hear Coach Kennedy tell it, this was a private, quiet expression um, when he was off duty. Um, but as community members um, and photos and videos show, as he developed this practice, gatherings at the 50-yard line grew larger and larger. He was joined by students, community members, state legislators, and eventually media. Um, and the school district of Remerton, Washington, chose not to renew his contract um, after providing him alternative ways to still engage in, in this private religious expression without um, kind of putting pressure on student members of the football team to join in a religious activity um, that they were uncomfortable with. Um, the coach declined those accommodations, um, and so he didn't return, um, but he sued, um, making, making the case that um, this was an attempt to restrict his, his religious 
rights um, in his in his capacity um, in his former employment with the school district. He lost at the lower court level again and again. Um, but when the case finally made it to the Supreme Court, um, a majority of the justices took Coach Kennedy's recounting of the events at face value and characterized this, yes, as a private moment of prayer. Um, and we saw in the in the majority opinion no mention of the effect that this might have on students, on football players who are looking to their coach for a college recommendation or as a trusted adult in their lives um, who might feel pressured or even coerced by an authority figure to participate in, in religious expression at a public school. This is really concerning to me because we're seeing how public schools are becoming these increasingly contested spaces, particularly um, for students who are members of various minority groups, religious minorities, um, LGBTQ plus students, non-religious students, um, who are seeing their own identities and experiences um, politicized by adults in their lives um, and within the, the broader um, political environment. So I'm still thinking about the decision in Kennedy v. Bremerton, both because the decision really doesn't match up with the facts on the ground and because I'm always aware of what it might feel like to be that student in the classroom who has to decide whether they will join their teacher in a moment of prayer. Oh, I, you know, thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, I think Justice Sotomayor uh, actually submitted a photo of like, you know, this guy praying like this and all these students around him. And it's just like, okay. Uh, and I'll just say like, the, the the crazy thing for me as a minister, as a you know, as a Baptist minister, why on earth would parents, would anybody want to subject their students, their kids, to someone who they don't know, leading their kids in prayer and actually like outsourcing like religious education and religious like spiritual leadership to someone who you don't know? I mean, it's it's terrible. It's terrible as like religious leadership have no, who knows what he's saying? You know, you don't, you know, you don't know. And so the, the idea that this is anti-religious is, is nutso. I mean, because you're actually outsourcing to someone who has power over your kids and can influence your kids. It's very dangerous. I mean, not only because like, you know, who wants to be forced to do that? As someone who's played sports growing up, your coach is really important, you know, and, and you have a, like, it has an elevated status, a very and they make decisions about where you fit. I mean, you know, whatever you're playing, like you know, who's first, who's second. So anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, okay. So we have three, like, really, you know, I mean, those are three cases. Liz, do you have any other cases that you feel are really important to mention uh, from this year, or is that the trilogy? I mean, the, the court took so many religion cases this year. We couldn't possibly cover them all. One, if I could just cheat a little and go just just passed into late 2021, that uh, case that I think was really overshadowed by Dobbs, but I think it's really important to keep top of mind is all the SB8 cases. This is about um, Texas's uh, legislation that sought to essentially overrule Roe v. Wade um, without actually overturning Roe v. Wade. It banned 
uh, nearly all abortion in the state um, and then had this kind of bizarre enforcement mechanism where it had private yeah. citizens enforcing the law rather than the government as sort of a workaround. It, it, it worked. It barred almost all abortion in the state um, when Roe v. Wade was at that time still ostensibly on the books. And the court um, allowed this ridiculous scheme to go in effect, uh, banning abortion in the state of Texas long before Dobbs. And I think it's just such an important case to remember because it just absolutely upends our constitutional system. Um, even Justice John Roberts, by no means a friend to abortion rights, um, was the, the wrote the dissent and said, you know, this is not how we decide constitutional issues. We don't let states just overturn constitutional rights without even hearing the case. And so I think that that is just a, a really important case to remember, um, yeah. even though it, 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 as I said, was kind of soon overshadowed by Dobbs. Yeah, thank you for, for that. Okay, any hope? I mean, is there any hope? I, I you know, I, 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 you know, I grew up, really revering the court and really feeling it was like a, a, a powerful tool for advancing um, our society. And right now it feels completely retrograde um, and and really out of step, I have to say, with the majority of Americans. Um, but, you know, I'm not one to undermine institutions necessarily. Uh, so I'm just like, what are, what, are, what are ways that we can continue to... Um, believe in the idea of uh, the rule of law and the Supreme Court while recognizing that this is just going to be uh, um, maybe a rough period for uh, an inclusive vision of religious freedom that actually recognizes that people from all different faith traditions and no faith have the, as, as Katie so perfectly put it, like complete and absolute ability to believe what they want, but not actually express that in ways that can harm other people. I, I do, but I'm, I'm, I want both of you to offer me some hope. I'm going to force the hope out of you, please. <laughs> I will say I found some hope in the ballot initiatives that we've been seeing on reproductive rights, particularly in places uh, like Kentucky and Kansas, perhaps unexpectedly finding that they do not want to ban abortion in their state constitutions. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of outpouring of kind of creativity and, and activism from many different kinds of communities to try to get people the care they need. I'll say I don't have a lot of hope about the, this current Supreme Court, um, to be perfectly honest, but I think we can start thinking um, outside the court or we can start also thinking in a very long-term ways and not how we want the court to rule tomorrow, but really how we want to protect uh, religious freedom for everyone, you know, over the next 50 or a hundred years. Katie. I agree. And I would add that, um, the, the extreme shift that we've seen in, in the decisions coming out of the court, I think has mobilized so many people to register to vote for the first time, to show up to vote for the first time, um, or for the first time in a long time. 
And it has also awakened a desire, I believe, in members of Congress as they're hearing from constituents to take seriously conversations about ethics reform for the Supreme Court. So as we're Mm. recording Today, there is a hearing happening in the House Judiciary Committee, specifically looking at um, conduct that has gone on in the court that is real cause for alarm in terms of access, in terms of um, whose voices may be given more weight. And we're beginning to see for the first time, I believe, in in quite some time, a meaningful conversation on the Hill um, about court reform. Um, this is part of the checks and balances process that even as the Supreme Court has been revered in many ways, um, there are opportunities um, for Congress to take meaningful action to address what to many feels like a real crisis. Um, Mm. Something Mm. like a hearing is the first step, um, but it's a sign that we may be moving in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm sure you'd both join me in in considering uh, the the seating of Justice Jackson as also um, a a, a moment of hope. And and, uh, again, I I know just enough about the law to be dangerous, uh, um, but the I think her the, what I remember reading about her line of questioning around affirmative action um, was just really interesting and, you know, really couldn't have happened or wouldn't have happened had she not been on the bench. And, um, and uh, you know, it, it just I think she's, um, you know, it, it may be that her legacy is dissents, but dissents matter because maybe dissents someday can be uh, uh, a majority opinion. So I think that this is, uh, you know, th- this is uh, we, we can continue to have hope even as we, as you say, mobilize around things that the, the court may be deciding that actually can provide us as in, an instant to use other levers to make sure that uh, that uh, like inclusive religious freedom is uh, is preserved. So, uh, Liz and Katie, I want to thank both of you so much for kind of giving us a, a little bit of a year of, in review of, of the Supreme Court and and also giving us a taste of where we can go from here. So, thank you both so much for joining uh, us on State of Belief. Great to be here. Thank you. I want to take a moment to talk about some breaking news that happened while we were recording this show, which is that Brittany Griner was released from prison. And I was just looking up at the CNN TV broadcast. Griner is the WNBA star who was held uh, without reason, without cause in Russia after playing some tournaments there. Uh, basketball tournaments and so you know held in prison sent to camps uh, really a terrible situation seeing Ms. Griner's uh, wife talking about what it meant to have Brittany released and and I just want to celebrate that I want to applaud the hard work that went into making that happen and also just to recognize married couples deserve to be together Um, Brittany Griner was, I think, specifically uh, targeted 
Because of her gender and sexuality in this case, the Russians had no right to do what they did. And I want to celebrate uh, a family being brought back together and uh, just wanted to take a moment to talk about how important that is in our uh, national psyche and, and take a moment for all of us to wish uh, that couple well. And with that, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week's show. We need your help keeping this show on the air, and we hope that you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with family and friends. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part in these conversations both on and off the air. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the weekly State of Belief podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And join the conversation. Follow us at Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. And until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch, and this is State of Belief. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down.